0: Hello oh, and welcome to Spy Hards Podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, tossing back a shot of Turkish banana brandy. Now, I think before we dive into the action this week, Cam, before we get our fill of those fingers... <laughs> We need to address something. That's
1: so weird.
0: <laughs> I love it. That's, that's your head. That's your head, my friend. I didn't put that <laughs> in there. Um, I have a stinking head cold, and I sound very, very bunged up. I, I might sound really good to some of the listeners, and, and if that's the case, I hope you're all enjoying my smooth, bassy tones. But uh, otherwise, just letting you know, I have a rather heavy head cold, uh, so much so that you might call me Ian Flemmy. Oh, very nice. Where was that joke uh, when I was on here
1: during my COVID period and then also my post-Disneyland visit head cold?
0: Um, I mean, to be fair, I've never really noticed much of a difference. Oh. oh, okay. Anyway, anyway, back on with the show. Cam, what on earth are we talking about this week?
1: Yes, we are tackling the 1952 Joseph Mankiewicz drama five fingers starring
0: james mason yeah it's been a while since we've spoken about james mason i think this is the first time he's ever been our lead in a film
1: yeah so we had him on north by northwest
0: is is that it
1: was there ever anything else
0: uh he was also on that one with paul newman oh that's right he was on the Macintosh man he was
1: but it was like Macintosh man it was so weird because he was billed fairly prominently and i've Watched a lot of James Mason films, so the whole kind of movie you're waiting for him to show up, and
0: when he does, he doesn't really do very much of interest. It was weird. Well, notably, there is a, a small bit of connected tissue between those two films, as both films open up with scenes of the uh, British Parliament. Oh, of course, as all movies should. Yes, and, and now we will <laughs> all stand for the British national anthem. Cam, <laughs> that's right. Roll it. <laughs> What would be the most bizarre movie we've tackled to open with a shot uh of the British Parliament? Um that's a very good question. Um <laughs> I wish I had like a really quick witty answer for you. Cloak and Dagger would be a little uh, odd. Big Jim McLean.
1: <laughs> Big Jim McClane. The most like all American film ever. That would be great. Real quick. dudes. <laughs>
0: a real contrast of tones there (laughs) absolutely absolutely well uh definitely my first time with this film i i would assume it's the same for you cam
1: yeah i had never heard of this one it was on our master list to cover i guess at some point i looked up lists of spy films this one was on there but it meant nothing to me i know the director fairly well and obviously james mason
0: fairly well good friend of yours you went to school with him
1: Great friends. We, you know, graduated, uh, what was it, cum laude from university together. <laughs> graduated uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> What's the full term? Is it alma cum laude? I don't remember what the actual term I, is. I do you term. freaks
0: do over the sea. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so you're saying that you've had some fingers but not the full five. That's correct, yes, yes. <laughs> you had to hit your bets there. That's, uh, yeah, okay. I sort of had the,
1: my finger on the pulse... Of Uh, you know, classic film, but Mm. not quite on this
0: one. Okay. Okay. Well, let's talk about these fingers. There's five of them. The true (laughs) story. (laughs) I can't catch a break on this one, guys. There's going to be a lot of five finger jokes, but uh, all right. Here's your letterbox.com synopsis of Cam can calm himself down from the thoughts of so many fingers. Five fingers. The true story of the most fabulous spy of all time. <laughs> fabulous <laughs> fabulous <laughs> james you're so fabulous darling that is okay. not the word that jumps to my mind <laughs> fabulous that's actually like danielle derue's character i would have said that's more fabulous than james to me, that's a very, like, showy spy.
1: That's someone who's just, yeah. like, the corner of attention or the center of attention in every room they walk into.
0: Corner of attention. That's you in the party cam.
1: That is me. I am the corner of attention, <laughs> drinking my uh, Turkish banana brandy alone. <laughs> um, but, no, like, I picture, like, more of the jet-setting super spy. Obviously, Bond is the, you know, the obvious choice for that sort of title. But there's, like... Sure austin powers there's a few of those who play kind of the celebrity super spy that Mm. is not what james mason is at all he's like lurking around at night
0: well there is a second paragraph so maybe that will uh shed some light okay during world war ii the valet to the british ambassador to ankara sells british secrets to the germans while trying to romance a refugee polish countess yeah (laughs) that's that's accurate that part's true I will also note that, you know, the poster for this film has a hand with five fingers and it says lust, greed, passion, desire and sin. I don't know how they play into this film or how the fingers play into this film particularly. Uh, Okay, we'll come back to this, maybe, but unless you have a theory now.
1: Well, my theory while watching the movie was that it's a reference to five finger discount. Have You ever heard that term? Uh, Is that like stealing from a store, that sort of thing? Yeah, like shoplifting, you would say five-finger discount. It's someone who's stealing secrets. I thought maybe that's where it came from. But then I look at that poster where it's like five five of the seven deadly sins printed on his fingers. And I'm like, uh, maybe that's not what it was supposed to
0: be. And then you think of like, yeah, the fifth column. Mm Mm-hmm. That sort of stuff too. Like it's Nazis working inside of governments to try and bring them down. Like, is it tied to that? I have... No idea. It is one of those
1: titles that when you go through like letterboxd reviews and what have you, a lot of people don't
0: understand the meaning of the title. They've clearly not had the five fingers. <laughs> clearly. clearly. Not the full experience. It, it would leave an impression if you had. Yes, yes. Uh, Some fingerprints. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Thank you. Well, Cal, I'm starting to develop a severe headache, so maybe let's just talk about how we got so many fingers.
1: Yeah. Okay. So this started with a book. And the book was called Operation Cicero. It was published in 1950 by L.C. Moisic. And L.C. Moisic, it was actually Ludwig Karl Moisic, was the individual who wrote the book. He is actually portrayed in the movie by uh, Oscar Karl Karlweiss. He was a diplomatic attaché of the Nazi German embassy in Turkey in 1943. And he was somewhat involved in this caper we see in the movie of this spy for who is you know bringing secrets from the British government to the German embassy in Turkey so he was involved in taking you know in receiving those secrets and arranging some of this payment for the spy so basically what happened was uh, Moisic went through the war took part in this none of the secrets that were handed to him by the real life spy whose name was actually Aliza Bosna um And he was referred to at the time as the highest paid spy because he was making a lot of money selling these secrets. None of his secrets that he handed over, though, really had any impact
0: because there was so much German
1: infighting that even like the D-Day plans that he handed over really
0: didn't go anywhere. It's funny how we can have both parallels and no parallels whatsoever to this guy because we are the lowest paid spies of all time. That's true. But people still don't listen to us. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: Moisich... You know, post-war, had to testify at the Nuremberg Trials. He managed to get away without any sort of, um, you know, charges against him. But he also, like, just wound up, you know, working basically in business or something like that and disappeared. But this book that he published in 1950 got a lot of heat behind it. There was a lot of interest in this subject matter. And there was a bidding war actually for the rights to it between MGM and 20th Century Fox, and 20th Century Fox ultimately won the bidding war, and brought in writer Michael Wilson to draft it into a screenplay. And Wilson, um, you know, he's someone who got his start in the early 40s. He wrote "The Men in Her Life," which was an early Loretta Young and Conrad Veidt film, and then he proceeded to do some westerns. He contributed to the screenplay for *It's a Wonderful Life*. He wrote um, the screenplay for *A Place in the Sun*, which was an Elizabeth Taylor uh, film that he won an Oscar for for the screenplay. And then he moved right into this film. So what's really interesting about uh, Michael Wilson is that around the time of this movie, he was, you know, being interviewed and interrogated over, you know, potential ties to the Communist Party by the House of Un-American Activities Committee. And he was ultimately blacklisted, so his name did not appear on many movies after this film, even though he contributed to uh, Bridge on the River uh, Kwai, as well as Lawrence of Arabia, and he did win an Oscar for River Kwai, but because he wasn't credited on the finished film, he was not there. He did not accept the Oscar, and it wasn't until 1995 that he was finally
0: had his you know credit reinstated. And just for people listening at home, and, and for me, I'm severely dosed up, so I don't remember. Uh, what is the blacklisting and why did it happen? Well, Scott, uh, as you know, we talked about when we tackled Big Jim McLean,
1: a movie from the exact same year as this film, 1952. We've only tackled 1952 spy films. We did uh, this one, uh, Big Jim McLean, and also Springfield
0: Rifle, all from the same year. What a year. What, what a year. year. What a weird year, right? <laughs> <I, I, laughs> You've got your five fingers on the Springfield Rifle surfing with Big Jim McClane. That's right. That's right. So yes, um, around this
1: time period in America, there was a lot of fear about communist activity in the US. You had the foundation of the House of Un-American Activities Committee, and it was overseen by Joseph McCarthy. And in Hollywood, you had a lot of people naming names of people they thought were affiliated with the communists. And so I don't know what the story was with Michael Wilson. Probably he went to a meeting at some point, maybe in his younger years, and this popped up during the 50s, and he was blacklisted for that reason. And is that his career basically done at that point? Like, is there any recovery from there? Wilson is like a lot of other writers at this time period, where even if they're blacklisted, they're still working on movies, just not with a credit. Mm-hmm. For example, Dalton Trumbo uh, was in the same boat. Uh, he was a writer probably best known for Roman Holiday, but just like a a guy who cranked out Hollywood movie after movie after movie. And he also had his name named and got in a lot of trouble with the House of Un-American Activities. But even, you know, like Michael Wilson, he was writing movies consistently well after he was blacklisted just without his name on the finished product. Wilson still had some, like, pretty big projects he worked on going forward. I mean, he contributed to the original Planet of the Apes. He also worked on Che, which was a biopic of Che Guevara starring Omar Sharif. So even if he
0: wasn't viewed as a particularly popular member of the community, he still was working. I think when we're sort of towards the end of our work, you know, looking at spy films, which is many years off, people do not worry. We're to have to look back on sort of the 50s and try to figure out what happened because there are not a lot of entries in the 1950s on our master list. It's like people didn't want to see spy films around this time. Yeah, definitely not what was popular. Uh, sci-fi was very popular
1: in the 50s, so that was probably more at the forefront. Um, and obviously, the spy stuff would really explode in the 60s once you know Bond kicked off. Um, it is notable, though, that Michael Wilson did co-write a spy film in 1958 called The Two-Headed Spy that we will tackle at some point in the future, and it was directed by Andre de Toth, who directed Springfield Rifle. Oh, boy. What a a Mm -hmm. crossover. Mm Mm-hmm. So when Michael Wilson was brought on to write this film, they also hired a director in Henry Hathaway. Hathaway had done some films like um, 13 Rue Madeleine with James Cagney, Kiss of Death, the original version. It was remade in the 90s, but he did the original, as well as The House on 92nd Street.
0: No! (laughs) Uh, The film that haunts our dreams.
1: (laughs) and um he uh would later go on and do things like the john wayne classics true grit and sons of katie elder so he has a very like respected
0: filmography but
1: yeah that was the case at the point
0: he tried to get out of the shadow of 92nd street but he never could quite shake it he tried yeah and um so the
1: head of fox daryl zanuck urged them to make it somewhat of a semi-documentary, I guess a little bit like The House on 92nd Street. That was kind of the trend at the time. Sure. And they added the love interest to the story because that was not a real element of the story, Uh, as well as they looked at the title, and it was called Operation Cicero, and that made them a little nervous. So they ended up changing it because they were really worried that people would think it was about the race riots in Cicero, Illinois that had happened um, around that time period. And so that's when the Five Fingers title was added
0: instead. Like It would have made more sense if he had less fingers. Mm. Like like sure. the the chap from Cloak and Dagger, like it was missing a finger or uh, <laughs> uh, 39 Steps, for instance, yeah. missing a finger. Yeah. And then it's like, hey, the man with four fingers. Oh, okay, sure. But I still don't understand where Five Fingers comes from. And if you guys know, do, do let us know if we're missing something obvious here. Yeah, well... It's statistically very likely that we're missing something very obvious here. <laughs> I think five-finger discount makes the most sense of anything. I, I think it's the fifth column. Okay, yeah. So,
1: maybe it's both. Uh, so, Daryl Zanuck also brought in Joseph L. Mankiewicz to polish the script. And Mankiewicz, one of the legends of Hollywood, um, he got his start writing titles for various films in the late 20s, before getting a screenplay credit on 1929's The Comedy Fast Company. And his first, like, kind of big credit was the 1931 Jackie Cooper comedy Skippy for Norman Tarog. And Norman Tarog would go on to direct Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine. That was the first one, right? That was the first one. Oh, yeah, the good one. Wow. Well, I use good loosely. Yeah. Hmm. So Mankiewicz very much established himself as like a studio writer and could, you know, crank out scripts very quickly, Um, and it wasn't until, like, the mid-40s that he moved into directing, and he started off in 46 with the uh, effort Dragonwick, starring Gene Tierney, which he wrote and directed, and then he moved into, uh, shortly after, the 1947 hit Ghost and Mrs. Muir, which is one of my all-time favorite movies, and then it was just, like, the Hollywood Doors Opened, and he made a series of films, like a lot of classics. He made The Letter to Three Wives, No Way Out, which was an early Sidney Poitier vehicle. Um, he did All About Eve in 1950, which was like the big Oscar lightning rod. It won like pretty much every Oscar that it was nominated for, one of the all-time big dominators in that field. Uh, and it's a great, great film. And just before this movie, he had done a Cary Grant comedy called People Will Talk. But Mankiewicz is just one of those kind of legends of Hollywood. Someone who was a nine-time Oscar nominee. He won four. Two for writing and directing, A Letter to Three Wives, and then two for All About Eve. And uh, closed out his career with 1972's Sleuth with Michael Caine. So, like, this guy, really one of the legends of his time.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like I probably should seek out more of his work. Because, I, as we'll get into, I I quite like this film. Yeah, and his nephew it would be tom mankovitz who would work on three
1: different bond films and also isn't that
0: isn't that sort of a family name in hollywood
1: yeah i believe his brother herman mankovitz was also a screenwriter who co-wrote citizen
0: kane and is that where that mank film comes from is it is that him yes right i haven't seen it i don't know so okay so a good name to have in hollywood yes and uh so he did this polish on the script,
1: and um, Zanuck was very happy with it, and Mankiewicz decided he would like to direct this film, but the agreement was he would be allowed to direct if he waived his credit for co-writing the film. So ultimately, the film is directed by him, but he did
0: uncredited rewrite work on this movie. Okay. I I, I think that's probably a fair trade-off, not to confuse people. you know, It's still Michael Wilson's baby, and he mm-hmm. gets the credit as director, so everyone gets... A fair share yeah definitely okay
1: and so when it came to casting james mason was easy he just wanted to work with mankovitz so he signed on um and french actress micheline presley um was hired to be the female lead to play the countess and she was maybe best known at the time for the 1951 errol flynn film the adventures of captain fabian but she became pregnant and then was replaced by Danielle Daru, who around this point had had a decent run of studio films and French film work. So she wasn't like a name, but she had a pretty respectable catalogue. Like a good
0: hand to put in the film.
1: Yeah. Sure. And the movie was mostly shot in a studio, but they did do location work in Istanbul, all with doubles. So when you watch the movie and you see people running around Istanbul, those are not actually James Mason and his, the various co-stars around him.
0: Those are actually doubles. Didn't the same thing happen with the remake of the man who knew too much? Uh,
1: no, they did actually go to Morocco, but it did happen with something else we covered
0: fairly recently that I'm completely blanking on. Yeah, it's it's in my head that they did like on location shoots, but it wasn't the real people. Hmm. It'll it'll come to us later, I think.
1: There was a little bit in the Emperor's Candlesticks, but that was reused footage. But there was something else where we did what you know tackle a movie that uh, featured doubles in actual locations.
0: Well, you know, that that could be a film we actually have coming up because of our recording schedule slightly off due to the holiday season, so uh, maybe that's a future note. Yeah, keep
1: your ears peeled, people, because this sort of production method may pay off later.
0: Yeah, and obviously I'm completely out of it with the amount of uh, pain pills I'm on right now, so uh, (laughs) it makes sense. But do you have any more for us, Cam? So the movie was like a reasonable
1: hit. It did 1.35 million at the time, which... When we're tracking 1950s box office, it's tough to really pin down numbers, as I've said before, with some of these older films. But the movie was a, you know, reasonable uh, performer, uh, but it was not in the, you know, top ten. For example, the top three for the year: number one was the greatest show on earth; number two was the snows of Kilimanjaro; and number three was High Noon and uh the movie would have some success at the oscars it would not win but it would be nominated for best director and screenplay at the 1953 ceremony uh the director oscar actually went to john ford for the movie the quiet man the john wayne classic and screenplay went to charles schnee for the bad and the beautiful which is the kirk uh, douglas melodrama that is an
0: incredible movie i recommend everyone check that one out there's that fun scene in the fablemans with uh david lynch playing john ford that uh, jumped out to me is when you mentioned john ford there yeah yeah trivia question where should the horizon be <laughs> top or bottom top or bottom never in the middle that's boring that's right
1: yeah john ford one of the uh great legends of hollywood i don't think we're gonna tackle him maybe at all on this podcast i don't really remember but he his thing
0: was not spy movies maybe there's like a a film that's like got spy influences we can maybe jump into at some point there are definitely some things we could bring up on agents in the
1: field but uh okay. yeah yeah we'll have to see who knows what the future will hold um as for this movie's sort of legacy james mason later said it was one of the few studio movies he made for hollywood that he actually enjoyed watching so this was one of his all-time favorites which i could certainly understand you don't think he was rewatching the macintosh man He was too busy practicing his diving off of the boat
0: to try and keep up with Newman.
1: (laughs) And this story would be remade a few more times. James Mason did do like a radio version. um, But later on, there was an installment of the anthology TV show Hours of the Stars, where Ricardo Montalban played the James Mason character. Another spy connection. Of course, Montalban showed up in the Spy Kids sequels. And also, in 1959, there was a one-season TV series based on the Operation Cicero book. And uh, it starred David Hedison, who would go on to play Felix Leiter in Live and Let Die and License to Kill, and co-star
0: Luciana Paluzzi of Thunderball fame. It's a veritable James Bond feast. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh More and more I learned about these things that Luciana Paluzzi did before Bond, especially with uh, Muscle Beach Party as well over on the Patreon. So it sounds like she's had quite the career pre-Bond. I I thought that was like her like coming out party and then went from there. No, she did quite a bit of work, actually. More so
1: than a lot of the other, um, you know, Bond girls or Bond female villains of the time. And she's still kicking ass today. That's right, still going. And this story was also made into a new film in 2019. There was a Turkish film called Operation Cicero, um, but they did not credit the book because the, the actual story, the book I don't think was necessarily the most accurate and was probably a little bit of a rehab job on Elsie Moisic would be my guess. Mm. The actual you know thief in question, the spy, Eliza Basna wrote a book himself about what had gone on, so it's more like this Turkish film was adapting the actual story versus Elsie Moisic's version.
0: And there's been a lot of declassified documentation post-war that's come out about this sort of stuff. I actually did some research myself about the real story. And a lot of the sort of... The heart of it's still still there. The twist at the end is correct, but, like, how they got there is a bit different. Yeah, and a lot of it is similar. I mean, like...
1: The actual spy did make off with a lot of counterfeit money. It was pretty much broke and arrested um, for, you know, having counterfeit money. But, like, just kind of wound up in poverty, doing odd jobs for the rest of his life. So, like, the movie does touch on a lot of truths. But, yes, it's largely a somewhat fictionalized
0: film. Yeah, but I I don't think that brings it down, which I think we'll get into. But I, I can see, Cam, you're exceedingly excited. You're trembling like a butterfly just to talk about this film. So let's do it. Let's talk about those five fingers. Cam, what do you think of the five fingers? I thought this movie was terrific. Yeah. I
1: really enjoyed this movie a lot. And this is, I think, the first time in a while where I was like genuinely surprised. Because yeah. when I look at our master list, when there's movies that like I haven't heard of, I tend to assume, okay, it's probably just because it's maybe a little of the middle of the road, for example. Not necessarily bad, but just one that's kind of been forgotten to the sands of time. And this one, just for whatever reason, I guess when people talk about Mankiewicz, they don't necessarily have this one, you know, the tip of their tongue. But this movie I just found so riveting, and it's the kind of like slow burn, more serious spy story that I can really get involved in. the actual caper element, I like how it's very, like, kind of stripped-down stuff. It's taking photos of, you know, documents, passing them off for money. The way they build it around the James Mason character I thought was so involving. Getting kind of the the uh, shoe leather, if you will, about how he pulls off his various spycraft tactics I found very involving. And one of the most genius elements of the movie, I think, was the addition of this Countessa character mm-hmm. who I think, like... We talk about in other films where when you have kind of a uh, made up character um, who's introduced into kind of these real life stories, often they make them kind of generic because they don't want to step all over the actual true story. So this character is kind of vague. Like when we talked about American made, we had the, you know, the wife of Tom Cruise character played by Sarah Wright there, who was kind of an amalgam of like a few people. Mm -hmm. And it felt like it. She had no real identifiable personality. Or the love interest in Operation Finale as well. Yeah, that's another one, yeah. Whereas like here, I thought like the Countessa element and the dueling dynamic she had with James Mason's character, Ulysses Diello, I found just riveting to watch and I was like making all these notes about their dynamic and how interesting it was from scene to scene. I thought this movie was very rich and I really
0: enjoyed it a lot. You're going to be genuinely surprised by this, Cam. Okay. I freaking love this film. Yeah, I like you would think this is everything against what I like in a spy movie. I like my action. I like less shoe leather, let's say it that way. I do not <laughs> like these chilly spy stories. But I think when they're done right, they really do connect with me. I always think back to Bridge of Spies as a, an example of it done really well. Um not necessarily exactly the same as this, but you know what I'm getting at. And I was just blown away by the twists it took. It kept me on my toes the entire way through without it being too heavy. Like, I had to connect dots the whole way through. And despite not knowing a lot of, like, the internal politics of Turkey Mm. during World War II, I don't know much about that personally, but they got that across pretty quickly. I was able to follow it all the way through. And some of those twists, I haven't popped harder for a film since Cloak and Dagger when the grandparents turned out to be the baddies, when that twist happened, when the Countess made off with the money, I was out of my seat. I was like, yeah. whoa, I did not see that coming at all. Totally blown away. And then there were still more twists to come. I yeah. I was just on, off the top of my head. I mean, like, the suspense is there. It's thrilling. Uh, it it takes a true story, but isn't beholden to it. I love that. And I just think Mason, as well, has this, fantastic performance he's like equally charming and chilling at the same time and that's a very fine line and a hard line to
1: walk i mean i watched this movie last night um i think i started it around 11:30 at night and it was a, a work night so uh, i'd work that day and so like i'd come home done a bunch of editing and then i was watching it late at night and sometimes that can be a bit of an ask sure. to watch something that's maybe a little slower paced I was riveted for like the hour and 47 minutes. And I just was like, I did not expect this. Like, I really thought this might be a little more of a struggle. And I think, you know, you and I, when we talked about like British agent, um, maybe like, I I can't think of some of the other ones, but like, there's a couple others that, um, you know, are kind of circling the back of my head where they had a lot to do with kind of the geopolitics of the time that were a little bit confusing, and you kind of had to pause and sit there and read up because the movie was kind of losing you. I think Emperor's Candlesticks even a little bit, to a certain degree. This one, I think it did a fantastic job in, as you said, like, you don't know all, ex- you know, about what was going on with Turkey at the time, but just the filmmaking and storytelling is so clean that I never felt lost. It just kind of shows you what a great storyteller can do versus some of those other movies we tackled which had their
0: strengths but were a little more of kind of your journeyman storytellers well there's definitely a sense of like economical storytelling there's a lot of exposition but it's delivered in ways that feel organic like they talk about istanbul as this home of spies but it's just one line that's thrown away and yet instantly you get the vibe of the of the area they're in and i love all of that and i will uh I just jumped back on, on something you said earlier as well, which really rung true. It's interesting when we're going through this because a lot of people might argue it's a bit silly going through all these older films <laughs> and seeing if they should go on the knock list a lot. Because if you say The Emperor's Candlesticks, well, there's a reason why people aren't talking about that film. It can't be very good. So, of course, it's not making a list. An hour and 20 minute discussion on the film is redundant. Mm. I see your point, but I raise you this film yeah no one's talking about five fingers yeah but i i think you should be yes i agree it's one that should be rediscovered yeah and and i want to discover it with you so uh let's let's pull some fingers let's let's do so well let's talk about things that we liked and i'm going to jump in and talk a little bit more about james mason I haven't seen much of his career, I haven't seen much of his performances, like apart from a bad guy in two different films. And I guess he's a bad guy again in this. There's no really any good guys in this film, which is another thing I want to get to. Did you ever see Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea? No, I only made it down to ten. <laughs> <laughs> good one. Thank you, thank you. Um I it's it's just a masterclass in that sort of upper crust British acting. Mm. Uh, and he's also playing this man who is pretending to be something he isn't he is uh, from a poor family spare him his life but he's trying to live this rich man's you know idyllic dream of that man on the balcony of rio de janeiro and he will sell his country out to do so to stick it to the man and that is ultimately his folly and it's such a fascinating story and there's all these like weird contrivances inside of it how like how the Nazis didn't use any of the information, but of course they didn't. None of it should have been trusted. It all makes perfect sense. It's so ludicrous that of course it had to be true. Yeah. And I just think, bring us back to James. I, I'm i just blown away by his performance of being able to juggle this like doting butler, but this like megalomaniacal scheming man in the background at, at, at the same time. Wonderful stuff. I love that
1: moment where he's telling the Countess about, you know, being on that steamer working when he's young and seeing, as you said, in Rio, the guy in the white suit up on the cliff and how he's been like chasing that his whole life. And I made a note like I never really thought about it, but he was wearing like black suits like the entire movie. Every time he goes out spying, he's wearing all black. So it's someone who's aspiring to this white suit and then we get it at the very end of him wearing the white suit after he has all the money, has gotten away, and that final shot of him just, like, laughing and hurling the counterfeit money up in the air, I was like, you don't have many endings more perfect than that. Like, a guy who's just cackling as his
0: entire dream is just crumbling right before his eyes. Yeah, he's lost everything, and he's like, well, at least the person who screwed me over has lost it, too. Yeah, And it's someone who just like you can see has that disdain for,
1: you know, people with money, but yet someone who aspires to it so strongly. And I think one of the really interesting elements of that character is his relationship with the Countess where, you know, he had worked for her husband as a valet. And uh, he has a weird line where he says, like, no one knows a woman like her husband's valet. And we find out he was dismissed because they were un certain with him he was a little shady and it's like yep he just screams that quality but his entire relationship with the countess is really interesting because we've tackled all sorts of films where it's these kind of like stop the movie as the sweeping love affair takes over I think of like confidential agent which is all about negotiating for coal but like hits that needle drop of like the sweeping score whenever you know the love interest is on screen This movie, I like the fact that with their dynamic, I was constantly sitting forward in my seat examining how it worked. Because initially, it's very much like a power play from him towards her. And the fact that like she then slaps him, it's this whole, like, no, you're the servant. And the whole back and forth of, like, you get me a drink. You get me a drink. And it's, like, back and forth ordering to each other. And... One of the great moments is you get the big kiss, which again, different movie. That kiss is just like a big sweeping moment. And the fact that it all plays out on her face, where you can
0: tell that she's like very much viewing this as an opportunity, not as a romance. It's that moment where she asks for a brandy and then says, I only have it in one glass, please. And he has to pour, because he's poured two, it has to pour his into hers and then put his back. Like it's such a, there's such a dynamic, it's like a tennis game between the two of them, back and forth, trying to come out on top and and yet i did not see that twist where she abandons him and throws him to the wolves coming yeah and it's interesting because he kind of throws her to the wolves
1: earlier on telling his own bosses like oh you know she's a gossip who knows she may have said some things it's like he's not fully throwing her under the bus but he kind of is saying like she's probably your leak don't worry about it and then to find out that she is the really cunning one Mm. that is what makes it just so great like the fact that she bilks him out of everything and takes off and you can just see how that plays off on his face and how he makes that one desperate basically money grab to try to get something and
0: escape well he has that disdain for people of position and power and this mm-hmm. is his like as i mentioned like he's like f you to those people but he ultimately wants to be a part of it and he is what well, he will be forever jealous of what she had She shouldn't really have it at the end but um yeah, I, I love the dynamic between the two of them. I love James's performance. I think Danielle was fine in the role. I don't think she stood out with anything particularly. It didn't feel like the big kind of star turn
1: you would get from a lot of these types of movies, but I thought, like, Danielle Derue, uh pulled it off. Like, she was very memorable to me just in her scenes with Mason.
0: Yeah, uh, nothing, nothing against her. I don't think it was anything bad. It, she was great with James Mason, but I feel like it was really James bringing the film up. Oh yeah. It
1: doesn't feel though like her role is like a movie star performance. It feels much more like a
0: almost like supporting character actor role. Yeah, absolutely. Um I want to talk about just some of the suspense and yeah, uh-huh. the, the suspense in the film. I mean, there's tons of sequences that really like build. I mean, one I I circled is like the most excruciating vacuuming sequence in <laughs> cinema history. <laughs>
1: Amazing sequence.
0: I I didn't think I could be so drawn in to a cleaner cleaning the floor. But like, oh, is she going to plug it in? Oh, 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 she's found the fuse box. Oh, she has a box of fuses. Oh, no. And then the alarm Uh didn't go off. And you're like, oh, he's got away with it. And he closed it. And then there it was. I, I, I just, this film kept me on my toes, but not to the point where I was exhausted watching it. Like I was just engaged with it at all times.
1: That entire sequence, which kicks off with him like cracking the safe to steal secrets, these ones in relation to what's going to happen with D Day and Overlord. Um, The fact that like we see the maid going to do this and we're just waiting to see how it's going to play out, I thought was just like nail biting. And I love movies where you have characters who are kind of desperate and you watch things crumble around them. When a filmmaker can really pull that off, it's just. There's few things that can compare. I think of like a movie like Uncut Gems, for example, which does that incredibly well. But you get that in a more, um, you know, it's not quite as uh, hyper kinetic as Uncut Gems, but this movie has that level of tension that's building as you're watching things start to break down. And that moment, I burst out laughing. I loved it so much where (laughs) his solution to when the alarm goes off is to run down the hall being like, he's getting away, he's getting away.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then they
1: look out the window and they just see James Mason sprinting across the courtyard.
0: <laughs> Genius. It's, it's a great move. I think I'll have
1: to steal that. <laughs> but, you know, jumping off of that moment, you get another great ten sequence or a couple more where he's on the run at this point And you have counterintelligence agents from both Germany and from Britain investigating and pursuing him. Mm-hmm. And I like the fact that everyone's smart in this movie. There yes. is no character who's an idiot. You know, the the Countess is treated as potentially one, but is the first one to look at the quote-unquote Swiss, um, you know, military man and say, he's German. Yep. The, you know, Swiss people don't click their heels like that. Yep. And it's so it's like everyone is very much in on what's going on. And so when you have these two counterintelligence agents who've been set up to be intelligent characters pursuing him on a train... Which was giving me like flashbacks to From Russia with Love, mm-hmm. also in you know Turkey, yeah. uh, and then also um, when they trail him to the uh, to the restaurant, and he has a small little room that he's reserved to hand over the plans. And the British at that point are like, uh, we don't care about the plans. We just want him. We want to like nab him and bring him back alive, so that we can determine exactly what's you know been the outcome of everything he's passed off. So much suspense there, and I thought, like, Michael Rennie, um, probably some odd casting because he doesn't sound very British as a British counterintelligence agent, but I thought he had a very good kind of, like, square-jawed investigator kind of persona, and I thought it was really interesting to see that whole final sequence play out through him
0: as he's, you know, preparing to essentially capture um Diello. See, I just assumed he was like an American working for the British government because he was even using an American accent.
1: Right? Like I wasn't sure what was going on there because this is the era of like the transatlantic accent. Sure. And sure. uh yeah, so I wasn't a hundred percent sure.
0: But that, that's fine. I mean, like, I loved that whole sort of chase through Istanbul. Uh I mean mm-hmm. and also I will point out that James Mason boarded the Istanbul Express, which we haven't seen since Condor Man. Oh yeah, hell make, yeah. Make mine a triple, baby.
1: Instead of that um, Turkish banana brandy, should they have been drinking those
0: uh, shots from Condor man? Yeah, the Istanbul Express. Uh, I would love to have that's what they were called. I would love to have seen it, uh, a weird connective tissue between a Disney film in the '80s and uh, to a James Mason film in the 1950s. And speaking of from Russia with Love, one of the great things that people always talk about with that film is seeing the relationship of the spies in in Istanbul. Mm -hmm. and like they're chasing each other it's like part of a game and they're all just kind of playing it and they're all doing the same thing in this and they're all smart like you say they're trying to work it out and they and and james mason's trying to play them off each other yeah there are no bumbling buffoons except for maybe the british ambassador in this entire film you could maybe say just the
1: german side because you're handing off you know these all these plans and these secrets to the nazis who aren't doing anything with them and he knows that that's going to be the case because he's
0: asking for british pounds uh you know in payment but that like, you can completely understand why they wouldn't yes that's the thing like and, and this is and this is where like the the stranger than life thing comes in this is so bizarre that it has to be true and it was they were given intel on operation overlord and they didn't use it because they were worried about its source and that's i mean that's pretty smart use of intel in the sense of you shouldn't trust stuff without verification obviously it lost in the war but you can understand why it wasn't used oh totally yeah uh, but i i would say like the the character of lc
1: Moisic is portrayed as a little not the most on the ball some of the other germans
0: are portrayed as a little more um canny so even him i would give some so, some like a little bit of leeway because he isn't a spy master he's just an attaché like he true his job is to get the tea for the the German ambassador. He's not uh, a guy who's dealing with this, and that's why they send in Herbert Berghoff's uh, Colonel Richter in later on uh, to try and deal with Cicero. Did you think that like the James Mason character was intelligent or just very clever? Well, maybe I'm not quite intelligent enough to discern the difference between the two, Cam, but clearly you are. So could you define the difference between the two words? Well, he almost just seemed like a very good kind
1: of, like, schemer. But I don't know that, like, he was, like, a great mind. He just seemed like someone who was incredibly good at playing angles. Cunning. Yeah, like, very cunning. Whereas I would say, like, maybe, especially when you're dealing with, like, the counterintelligence agents, they seem to me, like, much more analytical. Like, it seems like a lot of what he's doing, when you see him stealing the secrets... He's like, you know, <laughs> fully lit office just opening up the safe and taking photos, you know, under a lamp. Like it's not someone who is like ultra um I don't know, like
0: there's not a really great, you know, kind of set of spycraft skills going on here. No, he he's doing it very overtly as opposed to covertly. Um yeah. and that sort of brazen attitude was was definitely going to get him in trouble. I I think that's probably where his lack of intelligence comes in because he thinks he's above it all he thinks he's above all of the rich people Mm -hmm. and he thinks he can completely control the the spy agencies of both nazi germany and britain which is to his folly in the end because much as he gets quite far he is ultimately foiled
1: yeah and he also seems completely above the war because this is all happening in like 1944 and this is not a guy who seems particularly concerned with anything that's going
0: on. I mean, as he points out, by this point, I think Germany were already on the back foot. Mm-hmm. Like, I think to most people, they had already begun to lose the war. So to him, it was like no big deal Yeah, selling out his country. But I think, and as it's also alluded to, he's not a British person. I believe he was Albanian, and then he was sort of adopted by a British family, and it kind of went from there. So he has no loyalty. To England particularly. No, and he has a real like
1: outsider mentality. It's someone who doesn't feel like they belong and is somewhat striking
0: back because of that. Yeah. He he feels like the world owes him something and he's trying to take it back. But that's not necessarily the case. Do you think he had
1: any feelings for the Countess? Or do you think it was entirely about achieving a
0: station in life where you know he would have power over her? I I think it was all to do with power. I think it was all to do Mm -hmm. with exerting... Like, finding someone in his previous life that he could control. And she's the perfect example of that.
1: Yeah. Because there's a very, like, transactional nature to when he's, like, quote-unquote kind of wooing her. Where he's like, okay, you're going to do this, this, and this. You're going to get passports. It's like, this is not someone who has, like, romantic yearnings for this woman. It's entirely about... I used to work for her husband... And now I want to kind of have
0: her as my servant. Yeah. I, I think his end goal is to have her in Rio working for him or to ditch her before then completely and sell her to the the Germans. Um, I wanted just a couple of other likes before we move on to dislikes. I think James Mason wins the award for best jumper (laughs) in this film for having the money bags, jumper, the money pouches, jumper. Mm. Um, I want to see that come to the, uh, the spring lineup for Gucci. <laughs> uh, just so I can slide my new uh, yeah 20-pound notes with the king on it into that. Because, I mean, that guy was prepared for that meeting. He had the exact amount of pockets for the exact amount of money.
1: Yeah, I love how kind of like lo-fi all of the spycraft is in this movie. You know, whether it is just taking photos under a bright bulb... Or, like, the way he's dressed throughout the course of the movie. Just so fantastic. And we see so many of kind of the big blown-up blockbuster depictions of spy craft, mm-hmm. Even in one that's maybe more serious, there's a lot of money clearly put into making people look kind of impeccable in a way. Almost like, a you know, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is a beautiful-looking movie. And I, I like that this movie, like, <laughs> James Mason looks pretty, like modest a lot of the time you know when he's approaching you know
0: the nazi at night he's just kind of wearing like a black hat and like a trench coat well the idea is he is the underclass mhm he even says the only reason he was allowed out at one point is cuz he was entertaining some sort of like maid yeah and he would only be allowed to entertain maids at his class level so he's is lo- he's using his lower status to fly under the radar and manipulate the system and that's what obviously allowed him access to all these top secret documents And I like that the Countess is dressed to the nines
1: but seems out of place as well, where it's this person who's lost all of their money. Goring has taken all of, you know, the money she had in Warsaw. And so it's someone who's, like, trying to live this kind of, like, life of a rich debutante in a world where that doesn't really exist anymore.
0: And, of course, you're still trying to do that now as well.
1: I am. I am wearing a monocle just like that um, German uh, intelligence agent. I wish you put some more clothes on there. One of the things that I really loved about this movie was Bernard Herrmann's score. And Bernard Herrmann, of course, would do, most famously, the score for Psycho. But he would also do, you know, Vertigo and a number of other Hitchcock classics. And the kind of the low tension of this movie, I think, is really enhanced by the score. And I think the score does a lot of heavy lifting to sometimes making these scenes feel really like ominous and kind of
0: that sense of impending danger. The score jumped out to me as well, and I found it interesting that TCM featured this film on a Bernard Herrmann night as like a shining example of one of his scores. So clearly it's highly regarded for sort of Bernard Herrmann fans.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of uh, bummed it didn't get a Oscar nomination for Best Score that year, just because it may not have won, but I think it's some really fantastic work. And sometimes when you uh, watch these older films of the 40s 50s like the scores don't jump out as much but i thought this one was pretty incredible
0: we interrupt this program to bring you a special report calling all agents independent podcasting much like the spy game requires considerable resources whether it's research equipment hosting or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair we're putting out the call for your support.
1: That's right, as you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our
0: crosshairs this month?
1: We're wrapping up a month and wrapping up a franchise because we are going to take a look at the final Dirty Harry movie, The Deadpool. This one's going to be
0: crazier than a runaway remote-control car. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy heart today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Well, we're... Uh showering this film in praise but we should really give it the finger cam so yeah. let's uh talk about dislikes there aren't many yeah but i do think it's perhaps slightly too long okay okay um
1: i was okay with the length um did you find it like of the five fingers <laughs> did you find like the it felt too long in the first half or the back half first half
0: i think the back half is actually far Peppier in its step, like all the stuff running through Istanbul, the train, Mm. where where the pressure is really on for James Mason. But when you get to that sort of shoe leather, as you mentioned earlier, like that, it's all interesting stuff. But like, maybe there could have been 10 minutes taken out or five minutes somewhere. I felt like I was, I was, my interest maybe swayed a little bit on the second viewing in the first half.
1: I feel like the energy of the movie picks up once you get, you start to see, because James Mason is such a like controlled, cool, performer yeah that when he starts to show cracks that's when like the tension and the pressure really starts to kick in and the movie holds you that much more whereas in the first half you don't have that because he is so in control mm-hmm. and so it does make it feel a little bit perhaps slower but it does feel like a real like slow burn where the first half of the movie I didn't take as many notes as the back half the first half I was like kind of like looking for really things to dig into and those really started to you know
0: happen after maybe the first half hour or so. I mean, I, I was too busy talking about the Countess's meal at the start of the film in my notes. Oh, what was it? Remind me. Well, it was a salad, but apparently the uh, ambassador liked to, count, uh, liked to sort of comment on how much she eats. Right. So it's nice to know that men were being skeezy back in the 50s and 40s too. <laughs> Even more so, I would think. Evidently. Yeah. Uh, what about you? Something you disliked.
1: Yeah. So there was one element of this movie where I was like, this feels like a product of the time that has aged poorly. I don't hold it too much against the film because it's not too overbearing, but the kind of the docudrama stuff where we open with this movie with the British courts ruling that this movie is true. And it's like that kind of stuff feels like the sort of thing that characters on The Simpsons in a school would laugh at. It's uh pretty goofy. And then like there's a few instances of narration where they're like introducing the counterintelligence agents and it's like, you know, eleven fifteen. This location, you know, two agents have been dispatched to blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I get what you're doing. This was a trend at the time. We talked about the house on 92nd Street. Boy, did we. That sort of approach. (laughs) Boy, did we. That sort of approach to dramatic storytelling was kind of in vogue. But here, it didn't feel like it was needed. They obviously wanted the audience to really believe this was a true story. But Mm -hmm. I don't know that I needed a British court to inform
0: me that that's the case at the start of the movie. Well, I need that for all things. Mm. Um, there has to be a decree of the court for me to get up in the morning, let alone <laughs> do anything else. Uh, my uh, alarm clock is, of course, the national anthem. But no, i that was one of my dislikes. I think the sort of... It, it's kind of like thrown in there to sort of make it feel like it's globe-trotting. Like there's shots of... They're in Germany, in air quotes, but really it's just a picture of a building in germany and then there's people talking in a set yeah which i think leads me on to my other dislike i wanted to highlight and that is i feel i mean one of the things this film claims is it it shoots a lot of stuff on you know in real locations that this film was based upon like istanbul they went to istanbul and you're right they did and they obviously did sort of second unit stuff there with doubles but it feels very set based hmm The entire film feels very much like it's on a set. It could be staged, more or less. It could be literally a stage performance. And I think there is probably some scope in there for it to actually have a bit more of a globe-trotting feel, where your characters are actually shooting on location. Like, it would have been nice to see that. I don't know if it would have added much more to it, but I think there's slightly something missing there. It, It feels... I think it just being a product of 1952 slightly hurts it. That
1: kind of worked for me because it feels like the character is so confined within, like, these embassies that the idea of him escaping to, like, Rio, which people have these very romantic notions of. That feels like this kind of wide-open world that he wants to escape to from this kind of, like, boxed-in locations. I thought, like, the set-based stuff mostly worked. It didn't phase me too much. I did like when we were having the chases through Istanbul. That really added a lot. But even, like... When you go to the train car, that's another enclosed location. I kind of like that this
0: character is always kind of operating in enclosed spaces. I I totally get it. I I understand why you liked it. I just, it just I feel like if it had been made today, you'd see a little bit more of like on on location shooting. Yeah, I think it would just add a little bit to like because it is slightly globe trotting of a story. There is bits in England, bits in Germany, bits in Turkey, and I would like to sort of see. More of Turkey, specifically, because Turkey is kind of a character in itself in the film. Uh, Istanbul and Ankara are both, you know, entities in this film on their own right. Now, I, I did have a question for you that sort of came up in my dislikes section. Mm. To you, do you feel like the film had a hero? Uh
1: no, it has a protagonist, but there's no hero. Uh, I guess if you are to say anyone could be seen as the hero, it would be Michael Rennie. As the British counterintelligence agent, but even then,
0: is he ultimately that successful? No, not really. No, no. Um, yeah, and I, I, I'm not sure I'm gonna knock the film for it because I think the murkiness is really what works for this film. But it is weird to sort of be charmed by someone who is ultimately a bad guy. But luckily, in the end of the film, he gets his comeuppance. He's very much an anti-hero. Like I, I totally understand what they're going for. It's actually quite an early example of that. I, I quite like it. Um, I, I suppose it's not really a dislike at all, but it was something that was worth mentioning because I was looking at it afterwards and thinking there isn't really a, a person to root for except for maybe just the allies as a concept.
1: Have we tackled a spy movie like that before where it's entirely driven by a character? I mean, I guess you could say um, a little bit Day of the Jackal a movie this sometimes reminded me of.
0: I suppose, but you at least have Michael Lonsdale yeah. that you're rooting for to get the Jackal. Like, you have him to fall back on. And he is also sort of your co-lead. It's more of a dueling um, protagonist film, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This, this is very much the James Mason show. Now, luckily, he is a very good actor and very charming in the performance. So you're, you're able to sort of watch it by that. And there is sort of this sort of vicarious way you can watch this film where you would almost root for him in a way because of the sort of a, in like a class sort of way, like you want you know, the, the meek shall inherit the earth, as it were. You're, you're rooting for him in that sense. But ultimately, his deeds mean you can't get behind him. I actually have two
1: cases that just jumped to mind. Um, so you've got The Eagle Has Landed with Michael Caine as like a Nazi going undercover. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good example. Uh, that one, I think, counts. Uh, and then, debatably, um, Eye of the Needle with Donald Sutherland. He's very much the protagonist in that film, although at a certain point, Kate Nelligan becomes the more sympathetic character.
0: I, I was never really rooting for Donald Sutherland in that film. He is the lead, though. True. True. Yeah. And yeah, this is not a new thing. Plenty of films have sort of the villain, in a sense, as your protagonist. And it's it's fine. Uh, it just jumped out to me that... like. There was no clear-cut good guy which like it's almost very film noir but this isn't I wouldn't classify this as a film noir. Oh, I would say there's definitely elements
1: of film noir, especially in the relationship between him and the countess. I would say that is pretty heavily um shaded with film noir. Fair enough. Um any more dislikes on your side? I honestly don't think so. I think this movie really holds together fantastically well and I, I just have to, like, say, you know, you mentioned it up front, but, like, so much of this is because of James Mason. I hope we have a few more James Mason espionage films to talk about. I know he did, uh, I think, something else we've got coming up. It's a Le Carre adaptation that has a different... I think it's The Deadly Affair or something like that. It was... They changed the title from the book, so I, I get a little confused, and it's not a movie I've seen before. But, like, I like how he brings this very, like kind of low wattage cool to these types of movies where you completely buy in because when James Mason is like locked into a character, you're like, I believe whatever this man is selling. And I think this movie is so, like the the reason this movie succeeds so much is because of his commitment to that character.
0: Yeah, he is completely bought in and he is by far the MVP of this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I it, And it's also interesting, like looking at some of my notes for this, I've not really kept track, but I wonder how many films that we've covered now feature Nazis. Quite a few. Quite a few. And I'm sure we have many more coming, that's for sure. Yeah, and also trains. Also very common, yeah. We we should be keeping track of this somewhere, like a score marker.
1: Yeah. I also had another note, though. You know, you're saying for final notes, but like the whole dream of going to Rio, I immediately began to think of Notorious. Uh, The Hitchcock movie, which was all set in Rio and, of course, had Nazis who were escaping to Rio.
0: Yep, very true. Uh, And it's actually funny you should mention Hitchcock because he kind of appears in my notes a couple of times. I I wrote down this, in many ways, feels like, especially with my experience, but a Hitchcock film. Yeah. Like, it's sort of that man under pressure Mm -hmm. um, fighting against the system in a way and, like, I don't want to say the wrong man in the wrong place, but definitely that man under pressure breaking apart and his world sort of falling apart and, and that sort of tension, especially with things like the the hoovering session, the most excruciating hoovering session, that, that feels very Hitchcock. Like, you know the bomb's under the table, you're waiting for it to go off.
1: Yeah, that sequence in particular, I was thinking the same thing when you mentioned Hitchcock there, that that one for sure. Um, I would say some of the train stuff also feels very Hitchcock. Yeah. Um, and, uh yeah, there's a number of sequences, and I'm trying to think of like Hitchcock. At this point, in 1951, he did *Strangers on a Train*, which was a huge hit, um, and he'd had a, a number of pretty popular movies in the 40s. Obviously, *Notorious*, which I mentioned a couple minutes ago. Um, but when people like often think of Hitchcock espionage films, they're thinking more like things like a uh, you know *North by Northwest*, which would come you know a few years after this film. But yeah, there's a lot of kind of allusions to the type of suspense that Hitchcock was so good at generating. I think this movie the one thing I would say it doesn't have that's very hitchcockian is it doesn't have like the wicked sense of humor you see in Hitchcock movies.
0: Yeah, there wasn't so many like laughs, like giggles that you would get from a Hitchcock film, just like maybe from the dialogue or just from sort of the happenstance of things that they bump into. Yeah, maybe it's it's lacking that, but I don't see I don't think that's necessarily detracting from the film. No. The only other thing I wanted to make mention of is the the big twist at the end, the counterfeit money mm-hmm, I mean, I didn't see that coming, no me neither at all me neither i I thought like he'd made it. I thought genuinely it was going to end on him sort of eating caviar overlooking Rio. I was genuinely concerned it was going to end
1: with him, you know, in the white suit, rich with all the money in Rio. And it would basically just have these two characters show up and be like, we know who you are. You're under arrest. And I was like, sure, thinking to myself, this would be so unsatisfying if that's the ending to the movie. Because movies of this era, crime doesn't pay. Yeah. Right. Like you can't be putting out movies in the 1950s through an American studio where the criminal gets away with all the money and lives happily ever after. So clearly there's going to be some sort of comeuppance. For this character, and I love the way they did it. And there are very few images I think more powerful to end these types of stories than like someone just like throwing money to the wind like, literally, just like throwing it in the air and like cackling hysterically because everything that they've built is crumbling down around them.
0: And like, just James Mason is selling that oh, yeah, selling that everything that he has worked for, he's risked his life for, was actually completely pointless. Every shred of money he raised was fake. And that's the only
1: moment where the character becomes incredibly expressive. He's someone who's very buttoned down throughout the movie. Mm -hmm. You know, as we said, he's not like swooning over the countess. He keeps everything very mannered and under control, and it's not until that moment that he just, like, explodes in, like, maniacal laughter. It reminded me a little bit, actually, of that episode Crawl Space from Breaking Bad, which anyone who watched Breaking Bad will probably remember of Walt at the end in the crawl space, like, just having a complete breakdown, and I just, I got chills watching that moment in that episode, and this ending, I I was, like, almost punching the air, because I'm
0: like, you can't have a better ending than that for this movie like they stuck it man they stuck that landing bravo sir i I, you know it's interesting looking at sort of the history of this film afterwards Uh, nominated for two oscars and they won some other bits and bobs but i i genuinely and also maybe this sort of goes to our wider discussion as we wrap up i'm genuinely surprised this isn't discussed more often i could it be
1: well it's probably a mix of factors but i wonder if it's like Part of it is circulation. It's not a movie that was pushed hard. It's not on the Criterion collection. So it doesn't have that kind of like company that's pushing it as an important film. Um, Within the work of Mankiewicz, it's not as showy as a lot of the other movies that he put out. You know, All About Eve, you know, Cleopatra, which he worked on. I think a few people directed Cleopatra, but like these are big all time Hollywood movies that people very much look at very closely and have all the spotlights on them so maybe a movie like this which is a little more subdued um not as big a success at the box office just hasn't gotten the reappraisal to kind of push it a little
0: further up the you know up the list i should say uh firstly it did this film did win a golden globe for best screenplay yeah um and also it is available on youtube in several formats i'm going to try and put it up on our channel but you can definitely find it on youtube so it like it's easy to find now but obviously people didn't have youtube in the 80s and 90s and early noughties when people were really starting to do the whole like tape trading and really discovering films and home video so yeah i can understand why that's the case it just feels like it's maybe a shame if it's on youtube though it means that no one cares
1: yeah that's very true and that's kind of too bad because you'd like to think that like Fox would recognize that maybe they have something that they should be marketing to people who are into spy films and things like that like there should be like a nice blu-ray edition or if you know barring that let the Criterion company put it out or one of the other you know Kino or something like that have it and give it kind of a a nicer restoration put some special features on there and kind of keep the name of it out there because Yeah, you and I have tackled a number of movies that are streaming on YouTube and they typically are the ones that are just kind of forgotten and nobody's too concerned about them.
0: Yes, there's generally a reason why, you are not getting copyright strikes on those films is because no one's searching out the copyright on it. No one's trying to take that stuff down because they just don't care. And I I think Five Fingers falls into that trap, uh, which I think is a shame. Do you think the title
1: held the movie back at the time from being like a true success?
0: Yeah, most people were like, hey, I didn't see one to four. (laughs) I I do
1: wonder if it's like, I don't know, when I saw that movie on our list of things to cover, and because for people that don't know, when Scott and I choose movies, we kind of will pick each four at a time sort of thing. And when it comes to movies we don't know, you're kind of sometimes looking for a title that grabs you. Um, And, uh, you know, like, Five Fingers did not come screaming off the page. And so it was kind of like, yeah, this sounds kind of odd. Sure, throw it on the list. But it... Sometimes a title can make a big difference as to whether an audience is really that interested in watching it.
0: Yeah, because we don't, we don't know a lot of the films that are on the master list. We've just sort of looked at spy films or you have gallantly sent us films that we've added to the master list as well. And we thank you all for your submissions and keep sending them in because, you know, we love to hear films that we may not have. And we'd love to tackle those films and find them much like this film. But when we're putting those those groups of films together, we get like a couple that we haven't heard of and put them on the list. And we we go in blind, and this is a complete blind watch, and uh, I'm glad that we did it. Yeah, The
1: Emperor's Candlesticks jumps off the page when you're going to pick, right? I was so shocked it didn't make the knock list. (laughs) But like, and I'm not even joking, like that title jumps off the page. You're like, what's that one? Let's watch that. And then like Five Fingers, you're like, "Ah,
0: okay, sure, roll the dice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Cam, we've spoken about Five Fingers so much, I think I could sell you a picture of it. (laughs) okay so i guess it's all about the knock list now the question goes to you sir is it going on the knock list scott i am
1: giving the five fingers a high five because i think this movie does deserve inclusion on the knock list i think this is a movie that you know you and i have put some pretty big names on the knock list along the way. You know, Casino Royale 2006 made the knock list. Goldfinger made the knock list. North by Northwest made the knock list. But I think we need movies to champion as well, especially movies of a very high quality that people need to see. You know, you and I early on put Hannah on the list, a movie that doesn't have like a huge groundswell of support around it. Mm -hmm. And I think this is another movie that's absolutely terrific. I think that spy fans and enthusiasts will really get a lot out of it. And I think it's one that I can feel pretty proud having on a list and saying,
0: people, check this out. This is very good. Yeah, I I mentioned it earlier. Like, is there a point in having discussions about films like The Emperor's Candlestick? And you could say maybe it's a moot point, but this is the exact reason why you have those discussions because you find those outsiders. Hannah is the perfect example. You know, okay, is there also a point having a discussion about Casino Royale 2006 because we know it's going to make the knock list? Uh, yes and no. I think the discussion is still important to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm glad you said yes. I was a bit worried you wouldn't because I'm also saying yes. I think it should definitely go on the knock list. I was charmed effortlessly by this film. It was an easy double watch. Uh, I think I could watch more James Mason films. I could easily watch more Joseph Mankiewicz films. So I, I highly recommend this to spy movie fans. I'm glad it's so accessible thanks to YouTube, uh, the people can go and experience it for themselves. But I'm also glad that this is one that ran to the list that just seems slightly out there to people. Like, what is Five Fingers? I've never heard of it. Well, check it out. We'll give you the links to do so, because we think it's one of the best spy movies of all time. I also am
1: very happy to include a 50s studio spy film, because we've looked at Big Jim McLean, we've looked at Springfield Rifle, and they had their varying qualities that we enjoyed about both of them more so with Springfield rifle but like they were not they were not top tier material and it would be kind of depressing i know we've got a few other 50s ones but it is as you mentioned earlier in the episode kind of a a weaker decade for spy films i think we've got one called carve her name with pride on the list as well um as well as i'm sure a couple others but like i i like the idea of having some more fifties representation that isn't Hitchcock movies. Yeah. I'm glad you added that preface.
0: Cause I was going to say North by Northwest is clearly yeah one of them. And, uh, and the man who knew too much as well. Absolutely. But there you go, folks. We're very proud to say the five fingers is making the knock list. And the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. I'm so glad. I'm so glad this was a, an outsider and it, it won the race. Has this been, like, one of the most surprising movies you've watched for this show? In a while. In a while. this I mean, I, I don't like saying I go into a lot of these chats knowing my answer at the end. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the time I sort of feel my way through it or I sort of have a sense going into the discussion. But this one, like, I was going to fight for. I was worried going into the discussion that you would be on the opposite side of me. Like, I just thought maybe it was... I, I, I thought maybe you would have had more trouble with the pacing or the lack of a sort of hero protagonist uh, all that sorts of stuff but no you were on the same side as me I'm glad I didn't have to fight you on it <laughs> no I was just
1: so excited to find a movie on here that like literally I had no sense of how good it was because you kind of have a sense just from we're on Twitter you know we're on Facebook we see what spy fans are bringing up time and time again so it was really exciting to find one that isn't on the tip of everyone's tongues that like genuinely blew
0: me away to watch Yeah, and uh, I'm looking forward to you all checking out this episode and checking out the film if you haven't already. Uh, There'll be links in the show notes below to some of the videos on YouTube to go and watch it. But uh, yeah, what a great chat that was. Mm -hmm, Definitely. There you go, folks. That was our chat about James Mason's Five Fingers. It's nice to have a knock list entry once in a while, and it's nice to add uh, a James Mason film to the list too. Yeah, that's right. I guess he's got two now with that North by Northwest. Oh, yeah. Good point. Good point. Wow. We should like look at who has the most amount of entries that isn't a Bond. Yeah, I was going to say the Bond aspect. You have to uh, remove you know, Sean Connery, for example. For sure. For sure. For sure. Now, we have two exciting announcements coming up. Firstly, this Friday, I'll say this one myself, we're actually going to be looking at the new CBS show True Lies based on the James Cameron True Lies film. With Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jamie Lee Kerr it's back in the 90s. It's their TV adaptation. We are watching the first four episodes. We're going to give you our declassified thoughts. Plus we have a chat with one of the show's main cast, Erica Hernandez. So check that out this Friday. But next week, Cam, I think we have a big episode coming up. A real big one, Scott. We are going to look at
1: 2012's Skyfall. The 50th anniversary Bond film. Daniel Craig's third this one, you know, it made a minor ripple when it came out back in
0: the day. Yeah, I I, I I, seem to recall it being the biggest box office ever received by a Bond film. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. Yeah, take that, Craig haters. Well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week as we tackle 2012 Skyfall. I can't wait. I'm a big fan of that film. If you like what you heard on this episode, you can, of course, leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts, and we thank you for it. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, Cam, I think the bombs might be falling, and we might just be in the way.